cursed the curse of the devil exorcism a sacrifice blessing or bestiality the curse of the devil Satan in control of the body and the mind my love will destroy the creation I swear that you'll find Welcome back to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett, and I am joined once again by Troy Gwynn and our guest for this evening, Mr. Mark McLeod. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. I am excited to uh, talk to you. Uh, well, let's just put it this way: for the past couple of years, we've been excited to have new voices on the Nashy Cast talking about their experiences with the films of Paul Nashy, and uh, it it always um, it kind of ignites a new fire because it allows us to talk about these things in ways that we don't necessarily think of. And for the centerpiece of our discussion tonight, you picked out a particular film that um, I have to admit. Uh, I had not rewatched since Troy and I recorded the commentary track for it. Oh, about uh, seven or eight years ago. Okay. So, so it was kind of exciting to go back to the film, you know, having had some time to let it rest in my mind. And I just wanted to, I guess the first question I would really have for you is, uh, so what is it about Inquisition that, uh, made you want to speak about it? What is it that drew you to want to watch it? Well, I, I think uh, you know Troy and I were talking about my favorite Nashy films. I'm like, well, well I mean, you know, my, my favorite's probably everybody's favorites, right? I mean, like we all that the good ones are the good ones, the great ones are the great ones. So, yeah, um, I, I sort of kind of went back to my dissolving memory bank and, uh, <laughs> and trying to remember uh, the first Nashy films I ever saw, and I, I had a small list, and and I think we were just sort of look talking about that and i think inquisition comes up as probably the best out of uh i I had three that i remembered seeing in the in the 80s basically and probably not even really connecting the dots of who nashi was at that point to be honest uh now that i i I had a friend a couple years older than than me that went off to to school he would come back with all this crazy euro Euro stuff and end up, you know, Ken Russell and, and horror movies and stuff like that. So he, he probably knew who he was at this point. But, uh, you know, I, I haven't read any Pete Toombs stuff yet. I don't think it was even published yet, I guess. Uh, yeah. It's like maybe the 90s or so. But, but anyway, the first one I ever remembered watching was, was Crimson. Uh, mainly because, <laughs> oh, <my Lord. laughs> no. oh my lord! Hey, hey, you got to start somewhere, right? You, you know, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> man, you want to talk about you want to talk drawing the short straw, man? I know, I know, I know. But you know, it's that box, that humongous box art. Uh, I'm like going, this movie has to be great. (laughs) (laughs) Was it, was it, uh, well, I can't remember the title on that old box art. Was it uh, man with a severed head or was it crimson? Uh, It probably was man with a severed head, but like, you know, like that, that, that box art's now kind of iconic. It's been, Oh, it's great. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's been cut and pasted to death and just, you know, played around with and stuff like that. So, 
and the second film I remember watching was, uh, you know, I think everybody refers to it by the original name now, but it was House of Psychotic Women. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, a, a, again, you know, amazing box art for that one. Uh, yeah. You know, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, I think is what it's called now. But yeah. Um, the third one, and once again, I think I had to credit my friend. Uh, he showed me The Devils. Like I was probably like, uh, I guess, 16 or 17. So I I would kind of look for those type of movies. And then maybe Inquisition, maybe there's the Monty Python thing in the back of my mind, too. You know, it's like, oh, it's finished. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so I I watched it when I was a teenager, and I remember liking it. And then there was a an independent video store here called Broadway Video, and he he was getting all the the bootlegs from Video Search Miami and you know whatnot. So so I watched it again in the '90s, and this is when I have read more about Nashi and as a little more <clears throat> interested and a little more knowledgeable about his his material. And I like that version, and I can't even remember there's much of a difference between the the US, the original U.S. release, and then whatever the uncut version is. Um, yeah, uh, I'm like, I, I just like going, okay, that's a film I've liked twice. You know, it's like I remember liking it right. again the second time I watched it, and you know, I watched it again Friday as well, just to studied up on this thing. So that that's that, that's the main reason. I mean, of course, you know, like I, you know, Horror Rises from the Tomb, all the, mm-hmm. you know, the El Hombre Lobo, you know, all that stuff. Of course, is that's way up there, you know. But yeah. but I uh, I I really do like this one. I do. You know, I I feel it's a, it's a really good Paul Nashie film. Well, and it was cool that you chose it because it is his the first his first film to direct. You know, actually <laughs> director, which is pretty cool. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, and I'm like Rod had not. This was my excuse to watch it again for the first time since Rod and I did the uh, audio commentary for the Mondo Macabro uh, Blu-ray, which was our first commentary we ever did too. So <laughs> that had special meaning to us. We were you know uh, scared to death. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, but I ch- I chose to watch it uh, yesterday because I figured Easter Sunday was appropriate. Uh, perfect, to perfect day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Mark, uh, now that you can, well, I, you know, I can I can only assume that your original version of seeing Inquisition was a lot like mine. I saw it on a bootleg back in the nineties, mm-hmm. and uh, therefore it was a rip from VHS tape. And although I did enjoy the film, it was one of those circumstances where it it was perfectly fine for the time. But nowadays, woo, nice to have a Blu-ray of it. Did you find uh, your did you, did you find the the high definition enhanced your enjoyment of the film? Did you or was or was seeing a, a woman's nipple ripped off in HD a little much? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I can't really I won't publicly talk about my enjoyment of that. <laughs> <laughs> types of activities but <laughs> oh okay yes uh yeah uh but anyway not, uh, not asking not asking for a public no no i mean but, you know like, like a, a, a blu-ray does show off you know i they're, they're wearing red that you know like the, the i think the fantasy sequences look great mm-hmm. uh yes you yeah, know like is. the it, it really you know, you know i remember like you know like sometimes it'll show stuff that should be shown i, I it looked like it's a well-made film and uh Everything fell into place. I mean, like it, it, it was good. Like the the quality was good. You know, nothing really jumped out at me as far as like going. Well, this is spectacular, you know. But it, it, it it's a great transfer. Mm-hmm. And Monte Macabro is is easily one of our favorite companies oh, yeah. out there. Yeah, we just yeah. you know they, they just you know mainly just picking the material. Yeah. But then also just oh, no kidding yeah yeah like the you know the I I don't think I've seen a bad remastering from them at all. So no, really yeah. 
yeah, definitely quality stuff for sure. And I've been very happy. Let, let's just say that it's been a wonderful uh, collaboration <laughs> or, 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 or perhaps a, a fostering of great joy to have uh, to have Pete Toombs dig so deeply into Nashi's filmography <laughs> and just allow us to tag along, I have yeah, to say. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, like it, 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 he's picking stuff, I'm sure, like going, okay, you might not have seen this one or even remember this one, but there's a reason why I have picked this one. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. a very... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a reason for it. So I, the, yeah. every film needs to be watched for sure. Well, now here's um, th- this is Inquisition's part of a uh, a very interesting but kind of small subgenre. And honestly, the reason this film this film did moderately well, but not very you know not not great. It was not a blockbuster. It wasn't a huge money maker at the time it came out in 1976. And part of that is probably because it was a little behind the curve on um, these types of films. The heyday of them lasted, I would guess, about four years, from about 1968 to about 1972 or three, if you're being generous. And uh, there's only a few of them in the subgenre, and I think you have to kind of start and stop with what I would almost call bookends, which would be uh, which, you know, Witchfinder General yeah, and uh, Ken Russell's The Devils. And I think there are other movies... In between those two, and a couple after it, but those are the those are the highlights. Those two are the highlights of this particular genre, and you know, you depending on you know how much of an exploitation fan you are, you will enjoy the two Mark of the Devil films to one degree or another. But Inquisition strikes a kind of interesting in between spot. It's not as sleazy. It's not as sleazy and salacious and scumbaggery filled as uh, the Mark of the Devil films. It's not quite as high-minded as The Devils. I mean, it, it, it's certainly going for a lot of similar themes and ideas, and it is playing at being a, you know, an all-way-around, all well-made period piece focused on religious hypocrisy and all of the, the madness involved in the kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of things that happened during that period of time. Um, but it, it, it complicates things in some interesting ways and not necessarily in ways that Ken Russell's film is interested in and definitely not in ways that Witchfinder General was interested in. It's closer to Witchfinder General in some ways because there's there's a, a certain romantic interest within the body of the film. But in Inquisition, man, is it a curdled kind of romance because it's... <laughs> You know the the only the only way this romance is ever going to work out is if they you know they 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 die in each other's arms, which is pretty close to how things end. But you know it's yeah. kind of the church that's making them die next to each other instead. Well, it has several. I mean, there there's several things we'll get into that I think Nashi kind of brings as something new to, you know this this uh, you know to the story. Some things, some twists he put in there, and some some interesting ideas that I don't think are in the others. And one of the, one of them is what you just mentioned, right? Is the romance in this really? I mean. It's really pretty much a one-way romance because huh. she's yeah, and that's a different thing between this and and most of the other films of this type. It's the uh, witch finder. It's the it's the inquisitor who is trapping a woman, uh, and you know bribing her in some way and to save somebody or to sacrifice her, you know, body to him to use her physically in some way because of his sexual obsession. In this case, she's the one trapping him. Yeah, by playing on his loneliness and the fact that he's falling in love with her to get revenge <clears> on <throat> him for what she perceives is something she thinks he's done. 
Yeah, and I would say that also one of the things that I was very much looking forward to going back to rewatch this film is something that you and I, Troy, have debated every time we've talked about this movie, which is whether or not the film wants you to believe that Nashi's character actually had the lover of the uh, female lead, if 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 he actually had her had her her lover murdered or not, mm-hmm. because. There, the, it's easy to go. You, the movie allows you to choose your own path to a yep. degree. You can mm-hmm. believe what she sees in her psychedelic vision, mm-hmm. um, where you know where she's you know kind of super, supernaturally given the information that there was someone behind her her lover being murdered. It wasn't just bandits on the road that killed him, which always seems suspicious to me on initial viewings, but now every time I watch the movie and rewatch it over and over again, I keep looking for clues. And I think that once again, I have to come down on the, on the side of it. It strides that tightrope so well that you can believe either way. You can believe that there are bad things that Bernard DeFosse does in the film. There are things that are questionable and are, that are awful and that are moralistically, uh, terrible awful i mean miserable shit but at the same time there is no evidence and as a matter of fact his every reaction when accused of it does not make you think that he's guilty of this particular act as a matter of fact his his reactions are wholly believable as someone who's being accused of something that he did not do yeah and so the but but the so I once again I tend to fall on the side of and I and I and I hate to I hate to do this because it sounds like being an apologist for a for a reprehensible piece of shit, <laughs> but I really don't think he killed her boyfriend. I really don't. Uh, and the uh, the fact that in my eyes that makes the film more impressive because it really does go a long way towards something that you and I Troy talked about. Uh, multiple times speaking about this movie again, where we talk about how this movie really outlines the very few paths that women had to assert any kind of power in the society this story takes place in. And the the uh, the joys for me are watching uh, the little things in the movie as well as the big things that show you how women are asserting power and kind of doing things their own way even when they're having to make sure the men in their lives don't necessarily realize it. Yeah, yeah, I could, I, I could definitely see that. And, and you know, like, and I was looking at it again, and you know, like, like, and seeing enough Nashi films at this point, you know, there's a common thread with a lot of them. I guess once we writes and, and now direct, well, at that point directed was, you know, the, the, the sympathetic monster. You know, like uh-huh. the, the the character mm-hmm. who is in love, or you know, love with somebody or whatever. But however, you know, like, like, what, what, what if the monster is human? And absolutely, like you said, a piece of shit. And yeah. uh, you know, it's like, are, are we supposed to have any feeling for for Nashi's character at all, the Inquisitor? You know, it's like, and and I, I it's hard to say. It's very muddled as far as uh, like a morale <laughs> morality goes. Yeah, in this thing. So, well, um, I think he starts out this film as fanatically, you know, misguided for sure. If, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's, he's like, I don't get the impression. I think I've said this before in our other analysis of the film before, Rod, that. These guys, I don't get the impression they're coming into this as, however, fanatical and, you know, intolerant and ridiculous and a lot, that they are in so many ways. You know, they don't have that 
vibe about them of that they're just coming to torture naked women. You know, like they actually believe yeah. in to their own their twisted way. They actually, I think, all believe in what they're doing. I think he's yeah. truly blindsided by the effect that this woman has on him. I don't think this is something that occurs to or that he goes looking for or isn't is naturally. I think to this point, he's been pretty, however wrong headed, he's been pretty unbending in his genuine conviction in what he's doing. But once again, I mean, it is fascinating to watch him start doing those things that people with power do. Yeah. That, that, that and, it, and it always starts small. It always starts mm-hmm. with a small acquiescence to their own desires in a, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, can really not necessarily be called anything wrong. It can't be called a bad or a wrong impulse because it is natural and human and as long as you don't act upon it, you're okay because that means you're not affecting anyone else. But then it slowly starts to creep in further and further. And then, of course, when it when it really bursts into view, is the uh, is the uh, the impending death of uh, the uh, the man who's been his patron there in that town that they've traveled to, uh, Catherine's father. And mm-hmm. uh, we we get to the point where we realize that he has really stepped over the line. And that uh, stepping over the line is something that he's been creeping toward. And we haven't really been paying a whole lot of attention to the fact that he was kind of walking in that direction the whole time. You know, it's not something that stands out until you suddenly realize, oh, he's setting himself up to be their <laughs> to be their guardian when their father passes, which puts him in such a position of power that he'll be able to just claim whatever he wants from either of them. And uh, I mean, lucky for uh, Elvira, the character played by uh, Julia Sally, uh, he doesn't seem to have eyes for her, but at the same time, she objects strenuously because she knows what her father's wishes have been up until just recently, which is the you know the the, the friend of the family, Emil, mm-hmm. would be their guardian, and Emil is a decidedly level-headed person, yeah. a person who who honestly thinks about these things and is willing to, you know, within the within the restrictions of his relationship with their father, he actually talks about this openly with him because he knows he can trust their father. They have these open conversations about what he really thinks about these people who are being accused of witchcraft and what is really going on and how little these how little there seems to be in of reality in these accusations and the reasons perhaps lurking behind why some of these things are happening and uh, the wh- whether or not Elvira has any inclination that he holds these thoughts and that he is you know he would definitely be considered um, you know. I don't know, less than pious. Maybe that would be a, a good way to do it. I mean, he's not an evil person by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, I think, Troy, you and I may have referred to Emil as kind of the uh, the moral center of the story. Mm-hmm. But uh, and, no, and, and, and I think one of the slightly missed opportunities, although, I mean, the movie would have to be longer than 90 minutes for something like this to kind of be te- teased out, is that what you have by about halfway through the movie are two characters who are the opposite of each other, and they're not Catherine, the the, the Daniela Giordano character, and Bernard de Fossi, played by Paul Paul Nashi. They are actually Nashi's character and Eduardo Calvo's character, Emil and Bernard de Fossi, because even though they're not battling each other or locking horns even verbally, they do represent opposite ends of a power structure 
one that is very much in the in the world trying to create a, a good life, trying to create light versus someone who, whether he's realize, he realizes or not until the end, has really only been on a path toward darkness. And they really are opposite ends of the spectrum on the the the, the power structure that this this society, because you can't say Emil's part of the church, but they are the opposite ends of things. And the movie could have teased that out a little bit more and made it more obvious that that is, uh, that is what they are. But then again, like I say, you want to keep this a, a nice tight 90 minutes, you're going to have to sacrifice some nuance and some kind of exploration of, uh, of darker, deeper character flaws. And, um, Boy, there's plenty of character flaws on display in this film in the first place. So I don't know. I don't know if we. How many more do you want to squeeze in? I guess. But uh, let's let's talk. I don't know that we've ever talked in depth about one of my favorite things about this movie, which is the most reprehensible scumbag character in the movie. To me, is uh, Renover, uh, the the, uh, the character played by Antonio uh, Aranzo. And I think he's such a sleazy piece of garbage because they're, he, once he locks into the fact that all he has to do is stick certain pieces of information into the ears of the, uh, the Inquisitors and he can just wipe anybody off the face of the planet that he wants to, boy, he starts pushing that button a whole lot, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because like when I first saw it, like, and, and I think maybe when I first saw it, like I, I thought it was uh, that actor was uh, what's his name from uh, Fistful of Dollars and Free Free Dollars oh. More, uh, uh, v- v- Volante. But you know, I, I was looking at it up today. I'm like, going, oh, it's not him at all. So uh, <laughs> no, no, different. Yeah, guy, but like you guy. know, it's, yeah, it's like, and it, 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 maybe that character was there just to show just how easy it was to, because like, the, you know, there was, without thought, these, these inquisitors just picked up these women, tortured them, and they killed them, you know? So it was like, this, mm-hmm. they, they didn't they didn't question him at all but, as far as like just giving truthful information. Um, but look, And look who he is. I mean, I, this is another I think was very resonant for, and it's still resonant today, you know, and what we've seen in history is that, like, he's, he's the marginalized person in the town. I mean, he is the, yes. he's pretty much, you know, the village outcast. And so uh, when you take somebody like that who has no power and is getting, you know, and suddenly make give them, you know, when they suddenly feel they have a, a window into being a way to to gain importance, you know, and also, of course, there's a lot of revenge motivating his, you know, motivating, you know, lots his, of revenge, <laughs> you know, and 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 he's and as we see early in the film, he's not really treated very well. We don't know at the backstory, but, you know, he certainly he certainly is is uh, before we see him actually do something reprehensible. We see him definitely being not treated very well by the the other people in the town. True. Very true. The thing to me about the actor is that I've only seen him in a few of his films. Most of his movies are not things that have traveled uh, outside of Spain. I mean, he had a very long career, but he's unforgettable in in three different roles. This one. And uh, he was one of the he was one of the the poor bastards chained to each other in Cutthroat's Nine. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've seen that one, Mark? I'm sure. Oh right. yeah. <laughs> <a great> <laughs> so and good. then he is he he actually the third thing that I know him from very well and where where he's a, he 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 definitely stands out is uh, he's it's the only sympathetic role I've ever seen him play. I hate to put it that way. Yeah. Uh, is he is the kind of befuddled, clueless just weeping with with uh, fear and grief father in who can kill a child the 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 still living adult that yeah. the that the the the, the um, 
the visitors to the island, the the tourists, stumble across who's just shell-shocked by what's happened on the island. And it sits there and just explains his experience with what happened when the kids started doing what they do. And he's exceptional in that. I mean, it's a very small role. But he's so good in that. It's like the only time when he's not playing something that you don't want to see, you know, fed through a meat grinder because he's such a despicable person. Uh, and he's very good in that, too. But I have to say, most of his stuff, he had a, he had a role in Los Cantabros so, in 1980. Oh, so right. he worked with Nashi again. Yeah. But it's not. I, I don't. Rem, I don't remember what he had. What role he had in that film at all. I hate to say. So uh, the 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 standout stuff for him is two scumbags and mm-hmm. one really great supporting role where you really feel sorry for the guy. <laughs> and, and but the thing is, I mean, he worked constantly up until about you know 1997. But so much of it is Spanish television and and uh, uh, movies that really don't seem to have you know been even attempted. To come outside of Europe, or even just uh, even just in Spain, for the most part, but uh, he's so good in this, it makes me wonder um, how good he may have been in some of these other movies. And and if I ever get the chance to see some of them, I think it would be a good idea to check them out. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's, I mean, don't get me wrong, the movie is chock full of scumbag bastards. <laughs> but he is he's he's the guy he's the worm who gets the chance to, you know, pull the trigger on the gun and he just empties the freaking chamber. I mean, he just takes every shot that he can and to the point where people begin to suspect it. And that's something I'd forgotten about this. There comes a point in the latter third of the film when it has kind of become obvious and not not everybody's saying it out loud, but people are definitely realizing that people who kind of piss off and run over or run over, I can't, I can't remember how it's pronounced in the film. People who piss him off have a tendency to get rounded up and tortured to death and maybe burned alive. So maybe we should uh, stop fucking with him. I don't know. <laughs> the There's no nuance to the evil. Once he goes evil, it's just flat out. But I, I do love the fact that Nashi's character, as much as we don't like him and the movie does point definitely points us all in the direction of not liking the motherfucker he's a he he walks a tightrope because he is being accused of something he hasn't done in my opinion mm-hmm. now there are people who have seen this movie repeatedly and studied it and they don't they don't believe what i believe about the character i don't think i'm sorry i just don't i don't think that this film is expecting us to believe in an actual supernatural element. And I wonder if, Mark especially, I'll ask you, because I've talked with Troy about this, do you think that these visions that Catherine has are real or not? Actually, I'm glad you brought this up because I did write this down. And it's definitely, uh, they they address that uh, when the the doctor friend was in there talking to her. I think it's before... Mm -hmm. She was being uh, burned at the stake, or maybe before this. But like, you know, she described that she met the devil, and you know, he's going to get revenge. And he's like, going, that's a hallucination in your mind. You dreamt it, you know, with the drug. I think maybe you mentioned the drugs or the the whatever medicine the uh, the older lady gave him and st- gave her and stuff like that. So, right, you know, like, but yeah, like, like I I love the fact that like you you really don't know, you know, it's like like and and but I think. The, the, the film is so real, except for those fantasy sequences. I, I want to think it is in her mind. 
that that's mm. that's my own personal opinion. Uh, but once again, it's like it it can go either way. To be honest. Yeah, and this is this is another element that is unique to this film, I think, and as far as the films that I've seen in this genre, because when I think of the others we mentioned, Witchfinder General, Mark of the Devil, The Devils, there's never any question in any of those films whether there's something supernatural going on, whether witchcraft right. is real. You know, this this film, because of Nash's background, and you know, the first time I saw this film, you know, going into it, during watching the film, knowing Nashi that most of Nashi's films to this point, horror movies, the majority of them were based in supernatural horror um, was actually wondering which way he was going to go with it. You know, wondering was there actually yeah. going to turn out to be uh, something really supernatural force at work. And to me, it's not really until they have her in the cell and the doctor's talking to her and telling her right. these things you just mentioned, Mark, you know, where we see like how, you know, kind of sad and desperate and, 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 and lost she's been all along here and miss and, and delusion, you know, delusional and realizing that whole thing kind of hammering home of, of uh, how powerless so many people in that society, you know, were women and, and all that. And, but uh, yeah, but that's the neat, that was the thing that I think was unique to this film and this, in the, in this genre compared to other films, the genres, this one is actually one that doesn't play its cards until the end, you know, whether, okay, are we actually going to get some sort of supernatural occurrence, some sort of genuinely supernatural force at work here? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think it's interesting that, and this is something I'd forgotten until this rewatch, was there are, we have multiple characters who are burned at the stake throughout this film. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a point early on in the movie, after one of these uh, accused witches has been burned at the stake, where there's there's a conversation where um, Catherine or is it Madeline? I think it's Ma it's one or the other is talking with Mabille, the you know the old witch and uh, or old medicine woman, whatever you want to call her, and, and 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 she says that she saw her, you know, she saw this other woman being burned at the stake, and this woman while being burned at the stake was convinced, said it over and over that her life would be her life would be saved by her lord satan mm -hmm. and she watched and it did not happen <laughs> it, <laughs> it definitely did not happen mm -hmm. and then at the end of the film we once again we have catherine who for the most part before the death of her uh, her beloved has been a rational thinking individual as far as we can tell and by the end she is doing that exact same thing she is while the flames lick at her body claiming that she is going to be saved by her lord satan and it is this there's it's not i wouldn't call it bookends but it, there are it is two separate times in the movie where we have this very stark reminder that night nobody getting saved from this there's no in other words that's that's kind of a nail in the coffin of what what is there anything supernatural that's going to happen in this movie this is not mask of satan this is not uh horror hotel this is not a situation where Oh holy hell! There is really there are people who have risen from the dead, or there are uh, people who have uh, somehow defied death through the power of some supernatural agency. That's not what we get. And uh, this movie, uh, I think, because of that, it's another point on the side of realiz realizing that that supposed revelation that Catherine's character has in these. At these visions that she has that she's seeing what she wants to see she has a she has a villain in her life and at that point she wants him to be 
the ultimate villain for everything that's gone wrong in her life. I firmly believe that the movie, although not making it obvious, is, you know, or not, you know, not making it something that we definitely know, is telling us, hey, you know, her lover was murdered by bandits on the road. So it's not real hard to believe, you know. Uh, but she has decided that this is the beginning of the end of the life that she had painted out before her, and she paints Defosse as the ultimate villain in every bad thing that's happened in her life. And I just, I, f- I find it absolutely fascinating that the movie somehow does manage to walk that line where there are people to this day who will talk about this movie and honestly will argue that, no, 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 he he definitely did. I mean, we you know, we see his face. I'm like, yeah, we see his face in a vision. <laughs> we also see Satan eating food at a table. Well, you know, which, which, you know, which one of these things is not like the other? You know, and I don't know that it's another one of those things where I, I have this long list of questions that I want to ask people that are dead. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I've always wanted to just really sit down and talk with Paul Nashie with, of course, I would need an interpreter, would be to zero in on that tightrope walk in this screenplay and first praise him for it because I think it's excellent. Yeah. But then to also ask him, to your mind, as the director and writer of the story, are the supernatural elements real or not? And I honestly think that he would fall down on the side of the the supernatural elements being total BS, total totally within their minds. And I think it goes a, it goes a long way toward giving you kind of an advanced look at themes that he would explore in his in a few more movies in the seventies, culminating in El Caminante, uh, also known now as uh, Oh my Lord, what uh, the Devil Incarnate. That's what uh, Mondo Macabro put it out on Blu-ray as. And if by the time you watch that particular film, you haven't realized he has somewhat mixed feelings about the Catholic Church and, <laughs> and the, the uh, things that religion does to people's minds, then you're really not paying much attention. I think this movie kind of shows you uh, an almost... He's almost couching it in historical terms to kind of hide some of the the nastier things that he won't that he's that he's saying broadly, but uh, uh, and he does that in El Caminante as well. Don't get me wrong, but uh, there's no way to avoid it. Just it kind of gets smeared in your face like like putting on your on your nose in that movie and in this you could kind of play around with the idea that well clearly it's a it's a treatise on the evils of bowing your head to the lord satan it's like no 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 man it's about how evil is inside us all all right mark have you seen uh, el Caminante? i you know i have not seen that one yet i, mean, oh, I need dude. to check it out for sure Ooh, okay yeah, yeah. That. That i'll do one that one yeah that was, that that was that. Yeah, yeah that was one of the great uh, discoveries kind of when we did our podcast you know just trying to see everything that that was just uh we had no idea just how good that was going to be. Oh, good. I'll, I'll check it out. I think we have a, well, we have definitely have a copy of the store, but I'll, I'll mm-hmm. see if I can pick it up. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder, like, I uh, you yeah. know, like, like, like thinking back about, you know, we call, keep calling this a genre. I think we're loosely, at least I am loosely putting this into non-sploitation, although it's not, you know, it's oh, like, yeah. yeah, but like, uh, you know, like I'm trying to think if there's any, like, especially like, you know, you talking about the, you know, criticisms of the Catholic church, you know, going on from this genre, Witchfinder, General Devils, you know, Mark of the Devil, stuff like that, on to non-exploitation films, which I think came out of this stuff. You know, it's like, I, I don't think there's any supernatural elements at all that I can remember in, in many of those films. Uh, yeah, yeah. Would yeah. Catholic Catholic horror be a 
title you could give this genre maybe i mean or, or uh, maybe it's hard to say you know it's like yeah it's just medieval conviction i mean something that folds the whole inquisition witchfinder genre into i mean can combine it with non-sploitation under a kind of a umbrella of just like you know catholic horror you know? yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, and, like, and even, even possession films could probably a lot of possession films could probably fall under that as well. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. like like a possession film though, like like that th- it's usually oh, it is it's pro church, you know. True. It's like true. a lot yeah. of those things. Yeah. So that's true. That's true. Well, may, yeah, maybe so, but um, I, I think that a lot of the uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've all, I've heard it often argued that The Exorcist is a film that drove a lot of people back to the church in the mid '70s because it was it was it so freaked people out that they felt like they needed to kind of rush back to the to the open arms of of the uh, of of the the priesthood so that their children could be molested. But the um, uh, yes, I said that out loud, folks. I did. Uh, but the um, but but at the same time, even The Exorcist plays around with the idea of how much of it is real and how much of it is not, and you know how much of it's in their head and how much of it is not. Now I think that that movie more forcefully falls into the category of there being something unexplained going on, and I think that uh, the uh, the exorcism films, the various exorcism exorcism films that really kind of sprung up, uh, because boy were they cheap to make. Uh, right after The Exorcist was a massive hit, they're they're fascinating and they're interesting, and of course, the the serious ones, the ones that are really kind of trying to tackle religious themes, they're 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 fascinating to me. But there is something, and this goes right into whether or not we term an entire. You know, there there is a subgenre, of course, of nunsploitation. I mean, you know, great name for it. But my question becomes: Okay, because I wasn't raised Catholic. There is a certain distance between me and the uh, some of the imagery that's supposed to really kind of fire up someone in a non-exploitation film, and um, you know, so it's like, I you know I don't see you know two nuns making out with each other and immediately go, oh my god! I see two nuns making out and go, are they going to get those habits off or what? You know, this it, it's it's a period interest as opposed to it it triggering some kind of uh, loathsome um, uh, revulsion within me. You know, put into me by you know decades or years of religious uh, indoctrination. It's just not there for me, yeah. and it, so. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, say, like, you got all of Europe, too, which was under the thumb of the Catholic Church for, what, how long, like, 1,500 years or, you know, whatever, you know, so, so, you know, that is just deeply, deeply ingrained Mm -hmm. into their, into their, their fiber, you know. Well, that's, that's where I was going with this. Yeah. Is, I don't, I wasn't raised Catholic. I don't, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I, I was born in the 20th century. There's a certain lack of, of effectiveness that the non-exploitation genre has on me because I don't have that religious background. I don't find that to be true of Inquisition and the films that are very much like it, because uh, they kind of seem to, although they are, I mean, if we, if we, if you look upon these as, as Catholic films, I guess they would be, but there's nothing about them that separates them in my, in my viewing of them from, uh, in other words, although they are, you know, m- most of these films revolve around uh, the horrors of uh, the out of control power of the Catholic Church. To me, it doesn't seem it doesn't really matter. It doesn't factor into my uh, my thinking or my feelings about these films 
that uh, I'm not a part of that church because the things being depicted are so hideous. Whereas the things that are uh, often the crux of uh, the, the, the various uh, boundary-pushing points within a non-exploitation film are essentially the same boundary-pushing point, points that I would see within any exploitation film that really kind of plays around with cloistered females, no matter whether they were nuns or whether they were just, you know, um, kept in a boarding school or whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, I Troy, were, were either of you, I mean, neither, neither of you were raised Catholic, right? No. 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 And, and, and I wonder if even American Catholics would feel the same way, like a European Catholic would, you know, watching yeah, these movies, you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, possibly, but yeah. it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly Rod and I have talked before about how I think it is one of the key things that distinguishes Spanish horror films, even from other European horror films, uh, is is just how deep a thread or how deep an influence Catholicism is on their films. Now, obviously, you have some in certain Italian films um, you have, but I think still not to the degree. I mean, there's those twin things of living under the Franco regime. And living under Catholicism, I think, are kind of almost the two strongest things driving uh, Spanish horror films, whether they're supernatural or not. Well, now here's the, here's the thing that I've always thought, and this could I could be way off base here, but I don't know. So the thing about Spain is Spain's dictatorial government used the Catholic Church as a way to control the population. It was just another arm of control for a dictatorship. Whereas in Italy, while you know the Catholic Church was a massive part of the society, it wasn't my perception is that it wasn't being used by the government as some kind of stick against the population the way it was in Spain. Because of course, I mean they weren't being ruled by a dictator, so of course what would be the point? But I think that that is um, I think that that plays out in a lot of the exploitation films from those two countries where, um, I mean, for, for, for instance, the, the, uh, the stuff that you would see creep out of Italy uh, is, you know, pretty much crossing some of the same lines that you would expect if you were looking at films from, say, France. But the lines that get crossed in Spain, uh, once that dictatorship is over, it's all focused in only one direction, and that is sex. Um, the, uh, the 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 whole the whole sex film taking you know sex sex taking over the film industry in Spain, you know it's it's that uh, it's that boiling pot that now has the lid ripped right off of it, and everything can come just spilling out of it. But the only thing coming to spilling out of it is the desire to see you know graphic depictions of sex, <clears throat> whereas. The Italians, the French, the Germans, there were graphic depictions of sex starting in the 1950s. Mm. You know, not, you know, not, they got more and more graphic as the decades went along, of course, uh, as the boundaries got pushed further and further out. But in Spain, man, you know, we, they had, they, they, they had to, up until um, Franco's death, I mean, they had the, the, there, there was the export version where they could go over the line and have nudity and, and uh, show certain things that just weren't allowed. And then there was the version that was for home consumption where suddenly everything was draped in gauzy, you know, gauzy, gauzy, flimsy clothing so that we couldn't see that all of the nudity and certain things were turned away from the camera. And uh, I think it shows that, uh, that whole, the whole Catholic thing that's just, 
it, it's infused in these, you know, Witchfinder, in the whole Witchfinder general um, uh, kind of idea. And, uh, of course, man, you, it, it's impossible to miss in uh, The Devils, of course, and it's impossible to miss in this film. But it becomes one of those things where it's um, it's easy to see filmmakers being smart enough to to choose to make a film in uh, this era with all of these historical things to pull on, because you know it gives you an excuse to put all of these disgusting things on screen and to uh, um, you know make make it a money. The 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 strange thing for me is. If this is part of the the non-exploitation genre at all, I mean, and I, I guess we could call these movies kind of at least adjacent to the non-exploitation thing. The non-exploitation films always seem to be sexploitation films to a large oh, yeah. degree. They seem to be focusing primarily on the degradations of the female body, the the uh, the naughty uh, elements of female sexuality being drawn out uh, out of the you know out of the darkness and into the light and uh, the, the the strange part of mm-hmm. something like Inquisition is that it, it it like the devils has got a lot more on its mind it has those elements you know they're not gonna shy away neither of those films or Witchfinder General really shies away from the the sexual story that's uh, either you know that usually threads throughout these storylines that I've never been impressed at all with the whole non-exploitation thing, but this little sliver of, I mean, if we're going to say it's adjacent, I, this little sliver of it's always fascinated me because there's, there's just so much to chew on. And I've thought about it for a long time. And it's like, and I, I, this is an open question. I, I can't wait to hear what both of you have to say about this, because this is, this is something that I've, that I've talked about a few times. Um, and Troy, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. It's that, uh, there is a certain interest factor in movies with a lot of sex in them. But one, past a certain point, um, the sex scenes become something that you are ready to fast forward through because you'd like to get to more story now, please. And I sometimes find that to be true of some of the non-exploitation movies. Um, not these movies, not the Inquisition movies. But... I don't know how much of a taste. Do either of you actually like non-exploitation movies? You know, I can't really, uh, I can't really say that I do. I mean, like the, there, yeah. there's a couple that are that are just sort of bonkers, like I guess a killer nun, you know. But yeah. but, but that but that's you know that that that's not that, you know once again that's sort of peripheral. You know, it's not really in in, in the. Uh, Fully in that that genre and stuff. I'm trying uh, to remember. Does Alucard does Alucarda fit under that? Well, they are, are they like a not like more like a boarding school. Like I can't I guess remember. It's more of a, you're right. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah, I yeah didn't but, but, but still though, but still though, it has a lot to do with religion and. Yeah, but mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I say it's in there, and then you also have you know like like uh, uh, one that's completely out of left field for any of these genres is Flavia the Heretic. You know, yes, it's like that. Yeah, that is right, just yeah. a, an amazing <laughs> film. Yeah, but like, yeah. but you know, I, I wonder how many people trick were tricked thinking this is going to be like Witchfinder General or, or like an exploitation film, and and they got something completely different. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's, so, it's 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 neither fish nor fowl on that one, huh? But you know, I, I, I do believe there's nudity and sex and all that good stuff and violence. It does. They had, they had to have it. They 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 had to sell it. You know, because it's a low budget European film. 
they had mm-hmm. to put all that stuff in there to sell it to to the worldwide markets out there. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't think it's really you know I, I'm not a a collector of fine non-exploitation movies at all. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but I have all of these, you know, I have Witchfinder General. I do have, you know, Mark of the Devil and I definitely have the, you know, the best copy of the devils I could find out there. But, you know, th- those of course interest me way more because uh, like, yeah. like you just said, there's way more story mm-hmm. to, to these than, than, uh, than the other ones for sure. I, I just, you know, it, has it ever been pegged with a name? You know, it's like this genre. It's like it has it. So, no, some, no, no, someone no. smart needs to needs to come up with a yeah. maybe <laughs> us together. By the end of this, we can we can think of a genre name for the hmm. five films that are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like, I mean, uh, you could almost include you could almost include the Bloody Judge. By oh yeah. yeah, 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 so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, like, uh, it was a. Which of the Baba films start off like this? Black Sabbath, I think, starts off like this. Like, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, like yeah, may, may, yeah. maybe a little bit of that going on. You know, it's like, or black, you know, black, well, Black Sunday kind of. Stuff. Black Sunday, yeah, Black Sunday. That's that, that, that's the yeah. one. Yeah, but like, uh, Mask of Satan. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. But like, uh, so maybe, yeah. I, I don't know. But, it's like there, there's not much torture devices in, in the exploitation stuff. You know, but there's some. Well, I mean, you know, but okay, like, well, uh, wait a minute. There is a there is a subgenre that people people uh, toy around with, which is Satan exploitation. But to my mind, Satan exploitation, it, it seems, and maybe this is just from my perspective being an American, but it's always felt like it's a, it's an American subgenre of, you know, rednecks who've deluded themselves into being such religious fanatics that they, their, their sinful ways eventually catch up to them, but only in their ignorant little brains. Um, I, is that I like something like race with the devil or something. Is that what you're thinking? Of? Something like that? Or? Well, I, I, I am, but see race with the devil <clears throat> once again, there's never any evidence of supernatural supernatural anything in that movie. You're dealing with real world, you know, bastards who believe this shit yeah. themselves, and so that as yeah, I, I put that in the say the the Satan exploitation genre, and that's something that really kind of became a thing in the '70s. So it fits right alongside these movies as as something. I mean, because I mean, there's you know, Brotherhood of Satan. Uh, there's um, right. Oh my God! There's some there's and th- that means to my mind there's some really good movies that fit in there, but once again I don't know that there's ever an instance. Well, no, that's not true, <clears throat> because some of those movies do play with the idea that the uh, supernatural element actually turns out to be reality. Um, those uh, I won't I won't give the details away, but a particular movie where uh, older people are or uh, kidnapping younger young children so that they can live forever by you know moving their souls into those younger children's bodies and live out their lives um but the um and you know that 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 is definitely what is going on by the end of that particular movie and so you know unlike something like race with the devil where it's like no 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 these are just crazy fuckers who who sacrifice someone to a non-existent satanic force right mm-hmm. but uh yeah that's that's interesting i hadn't really thought about it. if if we can't i would not call it satan exploitation because too often no well maybe that is a good name though would satan exploitation fit i don't know oh or how about how, how about something with just really how about a religion exploitation or uh uh, yeah, uh, I mean, like it, it, it's like it's always medieval, you know. It's like it's, it's yeah. you know. So it's like I feel like you got to stick it back there as well, you know. But like, yeah, uh, yeah. but like, like, like every one of these films, you know, they're very rooted in reality, you know. Yeah. Which makes them, which makes them probably the most, in the case of a couple of them, 
can't say much say much for Inquisition, but like they, they make them the most effective horror films, you know. I mean, you can almost call them historical. You can call them historical dramas, really. I mean, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you could. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And and I think there is, and this is something to discuss a little bit at least because there is something about setting a story in olden days, you know, <laughs> medieval, the medieval period or wherever these wherever these stories end up being set, that allows enough kind of distance from us as modern viewers to accept potential supernatural elements a little easier than in uh, modern day stories, mm-hmm. <clears throat> or at least that's the way it kind of used to be felt. Um, the, you know, because once you're, you know, once you're talking about something like race with the devil, where it's you know very much a modern story, there are, you know, there are no, uh, pretenses about, uh, there being an actual supernatural thing going on. You're, you know, they're dealing with real people. It um, could have just been a, a biker gang. Race with the devil, True. you know, it's like this, this, whatever the, el- the antagonist element is chasing them in that RV, you know, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but by, but by adding that, uh, by adding the, the whole satanic element to it, it, it allows them to, well, it allows the filmmakers a couple of, of, of juicy things. One, they never have to explain to the audience ever again that these people are fanatical enough to do some of the crazy ass shit that they're doing to try to kill these people, right. you know, because they're Satan worshipers. So therefore anything and everything goes, you know, we, we establish up front that they're, uh, that they're essentially monsters, quote unquote, within the story and we can get away with anything. And also it never, it, it puts the, uh, audience in the position of having that extra little bit of, of a creep factor because, what if this story goes sideways and suddenly there is some supernatural element? You know, you have to, as an audience member, your first time viewing that movie, you have to wonder, oh, well, hell, is this going to go that direction, you know? Oh, you know, another movie that might fall into this category would be uh, Hammer's The Devil Rides Out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. I hadn't thought about that until just now, but yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's definitely a movie that would fit into this category. But the supernatural element there... Definitely turns out to be reality. Uh, yeah, oh, you yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah, no question. To the point of turning back time, long before Superman made it, uh, made it something we had to to uh, to uh, close one eye and accept for an entire <laughs> film to exist. But uh, <clears throat> well, I never really, you know, believed it, you know, and, until uh, until uh, Star Crash, you know, when the when, when you know. Uh, I mean, Christopher Plummer, you know, that freezes time. That's when I really sold it for me. This can happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what, once, you, once you have Christopher Plummer, you know, going to Italy for free so he can drink a lot for, for nothing, <laughs> it's 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 believable. Anything he, anything he says. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. you know, he could have he could have looked right into the camera and told everyone watching the movie that they can now levitate. And I firmly believe mm-hmm. that somewhere someone would have managed to levitate. But... You have to believe, man. It's it's yeah. like it's like Tinkerbell. So <laughs> you, have to, you have to really, 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 really believe. Um, hey, what about Horror Hotel? Isn't that one about Satan worshippers yeah. that doesn't have overt supernatural? Right? I mean, oh no, that, it does. It does have an overt yeah, supernatural. It does have a supernatural. It, okay, I could oh, yeah. since I've seen it. I know I really. I mean, I love the movie, but it's been several mm-hmm. years since I watched it. I couldn't remember if it's just makes you think they're supernatural, and it actually turns out to be just purely 
Satan worshippers doing bad things or if there's actually a supernatural element there. No, no, no. They make it very clear at a certain point that these people have managed to live for uh, much okay. longer than their right. allotted years should have been. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. Uh, and, and yeah, the 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 basement uh, the basement sacrifice is what's keeping them alive. Yeah. Uh, but the um, the supernatural. Let's let's forget about the the examining the story for just a second. How do you feel about coming out of the gate as a director with this film? I've always been impressed with Nash's debut film because it's it's clear he was taking notes. You know, he wasn't he wasn't screwing around. Uh, earlier in his career he was honestly paying attention this is the, and this is the film where he was able to step behind the camera and kind of to his mind uh finally ring from one of his scripts the film that he thought should really exist Mark, and, you uh, know that did you know that it was his first directorial film until we mentioned it uh i did i did not no i did not uh, and he, he's one that I was, you know, I was aware of the fact that like he eventually was directing his own films but uh i didn't know that this was the first one Oh yeah, it, it's, it's it's kind of an odd choice, but not because like like whenever you see, especially actors do like their own first time directing or only time directing, they're always sort of like these weird little projects, you know. It's like it's not mm-hmm. not the usual stick that they used to seeing them acting in or, or whatever. So uh, yeah, that, that this would fall in line. I think it'd be yeah, it looks like a perfect directorial debut, you know, as far as I I see it. Well, the, uh, the 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 amazing thing to me, and this, if you don't, if you if you're not aware of the number of films he directed, and and you know that that whole thing where you just mentioned about uh, usually when actors step behind the camera, they they tend to focus on um, very different kinds of films than you might expect. Uh, he did a fair amount of that because the film that he made as director right after this is another one that he starred in, of course is another one that Mondo has put out on um, on Blu-ray, and it's, I think Troy would agree, one of the most incredible finds of uh, our podcasting lives, The Frenchman's Garden, which oh, is yeah. another movie based on a, a factual, historical serial killer. And it's uh, it's an exceptional movie. It's very, very good. And it's it's another one, it's it's another one of Nashi's films behind the camera where, much like El Comandante, it would be very easy to look at those movies with no knowledge of the fact that the man who's responsible for making them is primarily known for playing a werewolf and just say, wow, this is this is criteria criterion level shit. You know, this is really good filmmaking. This is an except this is an exceptional movie. And uh, Frenchman's Garden was the first time he really showed that. And then a year after that is when he made El Comandante. And honestly, both of those movies are they're they're art house level brilliant, and they show uh, they show somebody who knows what the hell he's doing behind the camera in a lot of different ways. But uh, he didn't shy away from uh, kind of dark stuff. The movie he made between Frenchman's Garden and The Traveler is a film that got him in a little bit of trouble at home. Uh, as direct, he directed a film called Naked Madrid, which. Uh, is very difficult. First of all, it's very difficult to see. It's it's not something that, you, boy, do you have to go hunting for that one. Eh. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. you know, and, you, and and thank God there are people out there who subtitle these things for us because oh man, otherwise it would be completely un, uncom, incomprehensible. And I have to admit, it's still kind of incomprehensible even with subtitles, simply because it is so much a part of of Spanish society at that time. It's. Um, 
It's kind of funny. It's it's a it's kind of a comedy drama with I I would say more emphasis on the drama. But it's it's fascinating. But it, it is very much him poking fun at the upper crust of Spanish society, sometimes in some pretty mean ways. It's 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 an interesting movie. But it seems to me like <laughs> the Naked Madrid is kind of the movie you were you were thinking that you know may, uh, this is what guys would go off and make, right? These are, the, these are the kind of movies that they would go off and turn director because they could, you know, there's the only way to get this kind of movie made. But like I say, he was also kind of uh, moving back and forth, making horror movies and making um, what I would consider to be art, art house historical dramas as well. Uh, it's, um, you know, well, okay. Frenchman's Garden is an art house historical drama <laughs> about a serial killer. So there's that. I gotta, I gotta be honest. Okay, okay. He's not he's not straight too far from the wheelhouse here, you know. It's a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing is, Nashi was always he was always somebody who deeply researched anything like this, and so and that's where he got a lot of his idea ideas. Is he was constantly researching and reading and trying to determine uh, where good story uh, where where a good story could be mined from, and that's I mean that's how Inquisition came about in the first place is his original idea was he wanted to make a movie uh, that took place during this during the Spanish Inquisition but then as he researched the whole period uh, he was he was talking with um, some uh, historians especially uh, one particular one who explained that the Spanish Inquisition was a lot less colorful than the, what was going on in France which is when he started to focus in on and fictionalize a couple of people who actually lived and died in Spain during that period. And, and uh, that's why he decided to study it in, in France. I always, but before I learned that, I always assumed that, you know, one of the, the tricky things about making horror movies in Spain for most of Nash's career was nothing bad ever happens in Spain. Even if it's in all the history books, <laughs> it can't be talked about. So everything has to happen in Germany or, yeah. or, or uh, Fran- France or Portugal or somewhere else. I always like to point out that that's you know, do you know where do you know where the blind dead movies start, happen? They happen in Portugal, buddy, because nothing bad ever happens in Spain. Keep that shit in mind. And so it was weird to find out that that was not the reason. He just got he, he suddenly realized he just realized through his research, wow, they were up to much nastier shit in in France than they were in Spain, regardless of you know the the whole ubiquity of the phrase the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, talking about just Nashi as a director, especially I think for the first time out of the gate, man, he really it, it really is impressive. I always think about that, even rewatching it here, because one of the things, Mark, you know, we already talked about with Nashi as a director is never one to call much a, a lot of attention to himself through doing anything flashy. You know, he, he prefers to let the actors drive the story, but at the same time, his filmmaking isn't static either. You know, it's very, it's, it's like Rod mentioned earlier, said he definitely paid attention in the years <coughs> of the acting because the camera work and the editing, it's all always very well, you know, the story is always very easy to follow. The editing is smooth, uh, well thought out. I mean, he's, you know, the camera work is good. I mean, you know, the camera moves, but again, nothing, nothing, not any kind of real, hey, look at me sort of moves, but also, uh, uh, you know, well thought out. Well, you know, uh, the scenes are well framed. I mean, it's, 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 you know, they, they, they don't feel like a first time director, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, like the, the, the first thing that strikes you is the cinematography, you know, yeah. it starts off that yes. beautiful landscape and it's like going, wow, yes. okay, this man has an eye and maybe, you know, was, was it filmed in Spain or was it filmed elsewhere? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, he's just probably just showing off landscape that he's familiar with and stuff, but like, 
but you're right. Like it, it like the, the film moves, you know, it, it, mm. something like this could be very boring and slow until mm. the, 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 the naked torture devices start, you know, mm-hmm. uh, right. start <laughs> happening here. So, you know, like, like the, the, the pacing was, I, I thought very, very good. And, and uh, like I said, I, lo- I was really impressed with cinematography there's maybe a couple of edits that like maybe the music just cuts off a little bit too soon, but like, you know, once again, yeah. uh, if first timer, you know, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm willing to forgive him for that for sure. But like, uh, yeah, I, I was, you know, like I said, it's the third time I've seen it and I'm probably more impressed this time than I was the, the first two, you know, just mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. as him as a director, especially knowing that now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. This is, this is good. Really good. And well, directing what, what did you so. think of it? What did you think of his, his performance in the, in the lead role? Uh, I think it's good, you know. Like I said, like, like I said, I, I mentioned earlier, like his, you know, his his sympathetic monster, or like, you know, you, you, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if he's really trying to invoke some sympathy for him personally, or is the fact that like, like, like we talked about earlier with this, the supernatural or, you know, hallucinations, whether he's just. He was just a convenient male, you know, the one that lusted after her. She saw him as a convenient way to, to take him down, uh, or, or get revenge, or, or whatever, you know. So, um, I, I I liked, you know, as far as like an acting range, you know, it, it, it was good, mm-hmm. it was good, um, but but nothing really struck me as as like you know like going oh wow it's the best I've seen him do, um, it, but but it wasn't flat either. It wasn't mm. flat either. So. Oh no no I, yeah, yeah I, w- I, w- I wouldn't say that. By this point in his career, I think he'd he had enough experience under his belt. I mean, he boy had he made enough films by this point that you know once again this is a man taking notes and trying to improve himself right as he goes along. But I, I have to say there are some there's some standout performances. We mentioned earlier uh, Eduardo Calvo as Emil, and Eduardo Calvo is an actor who I think Troy and I have over the course of the of the podcast. Eduardo Calvo is one of those guys where you start every time you see him, you realize, oh, sometimes I won't even necessarily recognize him, but he's always really good. He's somebody who is believable every time on screen that you see him. And he's this is one of the well, this is one of his best roles for Nashy. I'll put it that way. And that that I have to say that means that uh, because of what we've seen, it's one of the best roles I've ever seen him in. But I think he is fantastic. And so I think uh, I mentioned Antonio Aranzo earlier as uh, the, the slimy uh, scumbag run over. But I think Eduardo Calvo is at least as good, if not better, uh, because he's not playing, you know, he's not playing an unrepentant rapist scumbag. <laughs> he's he's playing something a little a, a little more difficult to play. Well, he, he he's a voice of reason throughout the entire film, you know, it's like mm-hmm. basically this, mm-hmm. this entire thread. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, the secret for a good director and good actor, especially actor director, is surround yourself with people that that are that are great. And oh yeah, you know, it feels well, like I, that. I, I forget what one director, I forget what director it was who said, "His hire people who are so good that you don't have to direct them." You know, right? Yeah. But uh, also, I mean, almost everybody who, I mean, there's there's no way to talk about this movie and not talk about the performance of Daniello Giordano as Catherine. I think. She's amazing. She's this incredible Italian actress who comes in and is really, I mean, she has so many tough emotional things that she's got to get across. And I think she's just exceptionally good at it. She seems just, she seems fearless um, on on screen. She seems willing and able to do just whatever the story asks of her. She's amazing. 
and, and, and she has quite the arc, you know? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I thought that she was just, you know, could be innocently enough just singled out by Aronzo, but like, you know, she, she takes a, a path that, that I, I wasn't expecting, you know, at all. So yeah, uh, yeah you're right. She, she probably is the best part about the film. I think. And, and I think it was, we Rod and I know mentioned this, I think probably both in the commentary and, and in the, sh- the episode we did on the movie, or maybe in both is that, I think part of her innate personality comes across in the role that gives it sort of an extra depth there because she, she, you know, by her own accounts and by interviews with her, you know, she was definitely not a wilting violet by any stretch. You know, she was a pretty tough, uh, pretty tough woman and didn't like doing, you know, weak or playing weak parts. And I think she brought that to the character in the sense that, and it kind of adds this extra layer that, that what we, what my feeling always is that part of what attracts, uh, Bernardo Fossey to, you know, um, Hall Nash's character to her is not necessarily just her beauty, but just the defiance and the, the strength in her eye, you know, in her looks where she's, she's, you know, you kind of think about this guy has probably been everywhere he goes, people are terrified of him. They hate seeing him coming, you know, it's like, he's never, you know, everybody's afraid of him, but she's like the only one who looks him right in the eye without fear. And, because he's being lonely and because he's not seen this for it sort of adds that extra depth that that's as much as her beauty what draws him to her is uh is her her independence is her strength of character yeah well uh, this is something i meant to bring up when we were talking about nash's job as a director and it's something I, I have to admit i forget about it until i'm watching the movie and then as soon as the movie's over i forget about it again we and I, so I have, I have to make a note about this. I was like, I've got to remember to bring this up and mention this, which is uh, I'd forgotten how effectively Nashi uses slow motion in some of those scenes of uh, of those uh, those visions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's something like I said, it's easily forgotten because it's 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 done very well. Therefore, it doesn't it doesn't feel jarring. It doesn't feel like it's drawing out something that doesn't need to be drawn out. It's actually doing. It's actually being used. To heighten the, uh, the the darker moment in the story, which is the catalyst for how bad things go from there on, which is you know mostly we see this in the uh, the uh, robbery and murder of Catherine's uh, beloved, mm-hmm. and it's really effectively done, and it's uh, it's one of those things that um, uh, that I, th- I have to I have to, I think we have to give credit to Leon Klamovsky for showing Nashi the wisdom of using slow motion to get you know to get certain effects emotional you know to get emotional impressions into the audience's mind and uh, because I mean you can go back to um, Werewolf Shadow or uh, you know Werewolf, uh, Werewolf versus the Vampire Women whichever title you want to think about that movie under and what gives a lot of the uh, the, the supernatural uh, sequences in that movie, their real strength is that uh, it's this. It's not just a swirling mist; it's the use of slow motion, and that's something that Nashi, in this first film as director, has learned the wisdom of. He sees that you use that technique effectively, and you really get something good going. It really kind of cranks up the yeah. uh, the emotional content of what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Y dirás, 
la asamblea junto a mi señor. Watching this film a third time, and I think I've mentioned this on, in prior examinations of the film, but but it really stuck out to me again how uh, how nicely he he being Nashi parallels, you know, the these religious men and what they're doing uh, with the constant threat of the plague that's out there. Uh, it's going through yes. towns and because they're they're very much they are a plague in themselves, you know, they are, and I, I and I think without beating it over the head too much. Uh, it, I think it's pretty obvious the parallels he's drawn between the fact that, you know, the plague comes into towns and, de and, and leaves them decimated. And so do these men, because I think that the impression you get on these men is that they are never going to go into a town and look around and say, or spend a week or so and say, you know what, this is, these are some pretty decent folks. Let's move on. We don't have anything to do here. You know, you almost feel like they're probably on their own personal quota and that, they're going to root around and till they find some people to torture. And then it just starts to escalate because as we see the characters, the marginalized characters like Renover or the children who suddenly find themselves getting attention for saying the most outlandish preposterous bullshit, you know, suddenly find themselves the center of attention where before <laughs> they were before they're basically non-entities, you know, so they're going to go into all these towns and they're going to leave these towns decimated at like the plague. And of course the, I think it's a beautiful finale to the film where you you get the where the sense you realize the plague's about to hit that town because it really already has and you almost feel there's this kind of suggestion that the plague follows these guys and that the plague sort of moves parallel at least to these to these religious men. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, how about the older uh, inquisitor who you know just. Yeah. Without flinching, just goes ahead and just you know burns Nashi's character. Just uh, yeah, you know yeah. it's like like there, there, there there's no there doesn't seem to be any excuses or any cover up mm -hmm. or you know like so, so I think that you know unlike a like a mid level employee you know I hate to generalize that that's trying to justify their job <laughs> you know mm -hmm. going to these towns like he, no it, general, it seems please like he, generalize you know, because I fi I've I've, <laughs> I've found that generalization to be pretty accurate yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. But like, uh, you know, like, like he, he either he believes his own bullshit, or you know, he, he's he's absolutely a, a, a unwavering, you know, as far as conviction goes. So, well, yeah, um, because go ahead. No, no, I, that's that's basically all I had to say well, about that. But well, because the, that's another beautiful ambiguity about the film is does does that guy have an eye on Nashi's character, Fosse's position? Yeah. You know, we don't really know. I mean, he'd say we don't really know if he if he's or is he just fanatically just, you know, basically uh, Fosse falls falls prey to the same circular 
uh, logic that, you know, all this film is about is about people believing what they want to believe, whether it's Catherine, you know, wanting to believe, you know, that Fosse is the is the villain who had her lover mm. killed or, or the fact that they sit here and listen to this child tell this outlandish story and they believe it because they want to burn witches. And then finally, when when uh, the shadow of guilt falls upon Fosse, his the two his two you know his two uh, subordinates there. Uh, remember, there's one point where the really young guy, you know, the guy who's really pretty much ineffectual through the film and never really, you know, the guy who's just kind of the, the real young guy. When he he can't believe that the other guy, the older guy, is accusing Fosse. He says, but he's so pure and you know and 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 you know and and austere and and uh, uncorruptible. And then the old guy just says, like, well, that's exactly who Satan goes after, you know. Yeah. So again, you're going to, you know, it's just this continual circular logic that. Basically, once it starts, it's like, no, we're going to we're going to get who we feel we're going to, you know, it, it comes back on everybody. Well, that's just it. I mean, it, it's it's very much it's very much you can see it in the modern day world now as we as we oh, as for decades, yeah. you know, people have been warning. Let's let's just say uh, pol- political and religious fanatics that once you start down certain paths, there is no way to go. There's no way to to back up and turn around. It, you can only escalate because what you do is you you grow and grow and grow, uh, and the only way that you can become someone who supersedes the person saying something outlandish or unbelievable or ridiculous is to say something more outlandish or, uh, or ridiculous or unbelievable. And so there is only one way that these things go, which is they escalate. And so eventually it grinds up everyone. It does. Either you, there's no stopping it once you start that out of control thing. It really is a beast that will devour everything in its sight, and that is something that the movie hints toward there. Not just with the plague thing, but with the realization that uh, that young that young character, the ineffectual character you were speaking of, Troy. I mean, he had. I think yeah. he has to at that point start to have doubts. He seems to be doubtful about the, his own future because there's this mm-hmm. realization that wow, so anyone and everyone can get swallowed up by this. It doesn't really matter yeah. what, you know, what is happening or what they do or anything like that. The, the slightest bit of taint can be the reason for their destruction. And no one mm-hmm. is without a uh, taint or sin or however you want to, to phrase it. And so there is no way to survive this if it continues to escalate. And at that point, it has continued to escalate until it has become a. It's become the the Ouroboros. It's the the snake swallowing its own tail, which is you know, yeah. the Fosse being burned at the stake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of layers to this film, and actually did a good job with the story. A lot of a lot of you know a lot of stuff always to dig into. I'm always impressed by it very much. Well, there's a there's a there's a lot of thought. I mean, a lot of you, you can complain a lot about uh, some of the the uh, sometimes the sloppiness, the narrative sloppiness of of some of. Uh, Paul Nash's screenplays, and you could you could do that with this one, where like I say, there are different things that could be teased out or better explained or better or better uh, laid out uh, in certain ways. But uh, you never feel like he's half-assing it. He's really he's really doing the best that he can within the time restrictions and the budgetary restrictions that he has to do solid work. And uh, this is this is like I say, this is a fine example of him. Working at still at the at the height of his powers before uh, before things took a turn for the for the worse with uh, the the bottom dropping out of the horror genre completely there in Spain. Mark, Mark, have you uh, 
you have you seen Beast in the Magic Sword? <clears throat> it's been a long time, but yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a fun one too. Mm-hmm. Yep. But talking about talking about, you know, Nashi's the projects he chose when he began directing films, how interesting it is that it it took him several films to do an El Hombre Lobo film. You know, yeah. he eventually did direct a couple of them, but it but it was really kind of you would you know surprising that again once he got the chance to do his own projects, that wasn't what was on the top of his his plate of things he wanted to do. Right. Right. Well, uh, we, Mark, when we started this, you were talking about the you know your fa- your favorite Nashi films, kind of being the the standard ones that that uh, most people talk about. You know, Horror Rises from the Tomb and. Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, and you know those the, those those really are the kind of top liner films. But uh, I'm out of out of curiosity. Um, have you seen Hunchback of the Morgue? <laughs> I, I have. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I saw that in the '90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, got, got it from a video store in Clarksville. So, you know, once again, I was like, I don't know how cut the uh, the VHS was um, at the time. So that so that's one I need to revisit. Uh, I've listened to several of y'all podcasts, and you, you you reference this film quite a bit. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's it's an amazing yeah, it's an amazing film. It. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. We've essentially now covered it three times. <laughs> you know, we did our original episode, <laughs> and then we've had Bob Sargent on there to talk about it again. Yes. And, and it's yeah. just you cannot stop talking about the film. Right. There's just so much to it. So yeah, it's and 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 one of his and one of Nash's greatest uh, acting performances too. Really, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, he's not really even the main character in that too, right? Like he's. It kind, I mean, kind he, I, guess, of I guess he, but, he is. He is. Of, I guess, but like, it's, yeah, it's just the story changes so much. I mean, that's the thing I always said about that film is that every five minutes it becomes you. It becomes not what you think it's going to be. You know, it's like right. you start out and you think, okay, it's this kind of story. Then, then suddenly he's like, oh wait, no, it's going to be this kind of story. You know, and then it just it takes so many left turns while still keeping him as essentially the main character, but just adding so many different, another new element every, you yeah, know, yeah. every few minutes that just, just builds into uh, where you just like, what is going to happen next? You know, but it's just so much fun. Yeah. My guess is if I see the uncut version, it's still going to be as disjointed as I remember. Oh, I it's, have a it's, feeling it's that, still uh, got a lot yeah. of disjointed <laughs> elements simply because it's when, when you, when you can think about it from a, from a, from a very high level and look down on it, you realize Oh, this is a mad scientist film, and Nashi is playing the hunchback sidekick. Only the focus for the first half of the movie is on the hunchback, and then you suddenly get the the mad scientist, and you're like, "Oh fuck, it's a mad scientist story." What the hell? Uh, you know, it, yeah. it's 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 such a bizarre approach to <laughs> what could easily be referred to as a retelling of of the the uh, universal classic Frankenstein storyline that it's just utterly bizarre. And then of course, you know, th- throw, throw in whatever the hell that damn creature is. That- <laughs> well, it's yeah. The whole Lovecraft, the whole Lovecraft, you know? Yeah. 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 I remember, I remember the monster. Oh, it's sure. unforgettable. Uh, <laughs> like a slimy, whatever that thing is. <laughs> that slimy thing that, that li- the, the, thing, the thing, thing that lived again, come return of the living dead. <laughs> About, uh, 15 years later, but yeah. Uh, right. But, uh, well, uh, Mark, uh, I think that uh, we've got, uh, Troy, you said we've got, a, we've got an email here from. Uh, yeah. And I think we should keep, I think we should keep okay, Mark okay. on for this because it actually fits with, uh, because it, it, it has to do with Mondo Macabro, who we've been giving praise to. Oh, okay. It has to do with one of their releases. But before we, before we do that, Rod, I, I want to realize, you know, we never actually, 
mentioned why we have Mark on this this show, and just uh, and for anyone who's listened to our um, Mark did a bloody pit episode with us recently, and you can find out a lot more about Mark's background and the business that he runs. But we wanted to say, like you know, once upon a time, the three of us were in a town called Murfreesboro together, and uh, uh, Murfreesboro, mm-hmm. Tennessee, and I, and Mark, were you going to? school at that time too i know when i was i know rod was not yeah yeah when i met all y'all i think it was i was probably a senior i, 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 already, I was already time, yeah, yeah. yeah i had a foot out the door i think uh yeah. when, when when i met the gang <laughs> yeah. i guess it's a, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it definitely was it was a it was a crew of uh of a big big bunch of us that lived up in murfreesboro at the same time and so we so the three of us that you're listening to here along with many other people have spent many nights uh gathered around you know, a TV set watching movies and, and, and drinking beer and, and, uh, and, and getting, getting into the early world of film commentary even then. And you probably wouldn't want to hear our commentaries at that point, but, (laughs) but, uh, but so, so, you know, so anyway, that's the bond we share. The difference between Mark and Rod and I is that Mark is what you would call a success. Um, <laughs> well, well, Mark left for Asheville, Tennessee, and oh, no, opened no, no. A, As- Asheville, North Carolina. Asheville, yeah. North Carolina. I'm sorry, I said Tennessee. Did <laughs> I, I was about, about to say that's the mistake that yes, I made you, the you, first time I wrote liner yeah. notes for the uh, for the Bloody yeah, Pit right. episode. Yes, yes. <laughs> They share uh, mountains. Uh, they share the Smoky Mountains. Yes, yes. yes. Like <laughs> Asheville, North Carolina. There's a store called Orbit DVD, uh, and uh, if you're in Asheville, North Carolina, you must go to the store. But they also have an online site that sells DVDs and Blu-rays called, and it's a or- Orbit DVD. So we just want to make sure that everybody after the show uh, goes and, and checks out uh, Orbit DVD. But Mark, I wanted to ask you before we get this email, just just kind of a general, uh, do you, uh, do you get a lot of, uh, in, in, in the dealing, you know, do you see a lot of a market for, uh, what's Euro horror as far as what about, as far as Spanish films go with this? Yeah. Yeah. I say that, you know, we're, we're it's, it's a wide ranging customer base that we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started doing online about three years ago. Thanks COVID. Um, yeah. we actually might be successful after 20 years now, thanks to COVID, I guess, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, like the uh, the Euro horror definitely uh, is is up there. Uh, you know, like like the the biggest thing, and it's hard really to segment what people are wanting. It's like it's, it's such a wide variety of of movies that are be, are coming out now. Whether it's a you know like a fifties British comedy or you know like a, a, a Hong Kong is, is really big right now. Thankfully, you know we've been waiting for years for that to happen too. But like uh, yeah, that has busted you know, they, wide open now. That is, it's it's been incredible. It really has. But the but you know, like it seems like the the mainstay, the you know, like the the, the two mainstays in all this is is probably eighty slashers, and then uh, and then Euro, anything Euro, really, you know, it's just uh, you know, anywhere from uh, you know, Jess Franco to uh, uh, indicators now putting out what looks like two amazingly beautiful Jean Rollin sets uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, you know, like like down to, I can never pronounce the the Italian uh, uh, crime films. Uh, oh, Polachetsky, or yeah, I can. I, I always yeah. screw it yeah, up the, too. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, man, yeah, like 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 anything that Lindsay did, you know, like Umberto Lindsay, oh, God, you know, yeah. it's like yeah. yeah. So 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 any Italian director, you know, like 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 I said, Jess Franco does well. Uh, you know, like like uh, and, and like Gene Rollin really hasn't been represented recently until until this year. So. Uh, it, it, it's 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 been kind of great. It really has, and because it, it you know verifies. Okay, 
there's more people besides us that like this this type of thing you know and then uh and then you know it's, it's really turning on a lot of younger people on uh to to, to these different genres too you know because it's such a you know wide variety of, of films out there yeah and uh, I, uh, what and and one of the things that that I, the reason i ask is a lot of this is because it seems to me like still like a lot of this stuff is you know kind of this stuff by this stuff i mean you know spanish horror and, and a lot like it's just not out there on any like you know many tv channels and that kind of thing i'm talking no, about even it's, like it's it's not it's 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 if, if you're looking for this kind of stuff on on streaming services you're you're not, you're going to be pretty much shit out of luck yeah it's yeah right. it's and what's funny is even the ones, even the stuff from the seventies that got uh, pretty much all got dubbed, you know, with English dubs, and even showed up on television in my youth, you know. I mean, like even turned up. Uh, that's how I saw some of the early Paul Nashy films and some other films, uh, Euro horror films. Not knowing a lot of time, you know, not knowing at that point even to call them Euro horror, but they would turn up on the UHF channels. And it's interesting to me that I see, I sometimes see Fulci films and Argento films sometimes turn up on the random odd cable channel, you know, TCM even shows, you know, occasionally Fulci films and things like yeah. that. But you just don't see, uh, you don't see Spanish horror films from the seventies turn up anywhere. And, and, uh, so, you know, so yeah, I think that's interesting that they're still, you know, kind of unusual that they're still really, these things just aren't getting out there circulating. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think maybe like, like what I've noticed a lot talking, especially with younger collectors and viewers is, is pacing. You know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so like yeah. like uh, they, they, they don't have the patience for mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll never say these kids today because, you know, it, it's, just a, it's a new era, a new generation. Yeah. You know, it's just new yeah. everything. So but, you know, we, we have been able to turn people on to films that do take their time, like like a good mm-hmm. example. It's not Spanish, but it's it's uh, a possession. Yeah. A possession yeah. Uh, yeah. has completely as far as our world go, has taken over, especially with women, a lot of young women love that movie you know so so the, the potential to still attract an audience is out there i, I yeah. think i would probably have to go if i was really going to make inroads I, I would if i was a streaming service i, I would the first thing i'd value who would be who can, who can kill a child i think that's yeah, that's yeah. like that's you know just such an amazing incredible film that 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 uh and i think it's art housey enough yeah you know yeah, yeah. to where like uh, i i think it i think it could it can attract past like a, the, the horror the horror fans out there and stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting really uh, what what's coming and going, you know, it, once again, it's like, like was fueling, what fueled the business initially and probably still is 80 slashers. That's just yeah. endless, you know, it's like, and then, you know, these companies, these great companies are sort of using that to, as a springboard into bringing it in more titles out there. So and more power to them as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, like the, the like earlier, like the Hong Kong stuff, that, that's just something we've been begging for. Begging, oh, you know? Yeah. It's like going, please, Jackie Chan, come well, on. I mean, what seems to have happened is Arrow did that first Shaw Brothers set, and clearly that did well. <laughs> because not only, oh, yeah. not only did they do a second one, but now, good Lord, Scream Factory with this Brave Archer set and all Brave these Archer. other... And, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and then, and then, like if you go across the pond, you know, like like uh, eighty eight films, and uh, now eighty eight has a U.S. wing now. But like mm-hmm. uh, Eureka, Eureka really is, I think, the company that that sprung sprung <clears throat> all the all the Hong Kong mm-hmm. cinema. They they're the ones that it really put it out there, and uh, I, my hats off to them endlessly for for that. And thank God, sure. Troy, Troy, what yeah. is this? Uh, what is this email we've got? Yeah. 
well, again, it's even more relevant now because we mentioned who can kill a child a couple of times. So, uh, so this is like, yeah, so it's it even more. Anytime, anytime I can talk about who can kill a child, I will. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So good. Uh, so this, was, this is from uh, Kurt, uh, Kurt with a K, as he calls himself. Oh, He's yes. written this several times. He says, Dear Troy and Rod, have you had a chance to check out Tales to Keep You Awake from Narciso Abanez Serador, mm-hmm. who, as we know, is the director of Who Can Kill a Child? Uh, he says Severin released an English-friendly. I'm sorry, guys. It was not Mondo Macabre. It's Severin that's released. Uh, so exactly. Severin, yeah. Severin released an English-friendly version last year. Yes. It says the Asphalt episode. That's the title of the episode. Is Asphalt is a must-see. It would be excellent TV in any era, but the way it uses whimsy to deepen dread is astonishing for any output of Franco's Spain. Asphalt might be an allegory for depression or institutional indifference. But you don't need to take it as an allusion to anything to be impressed. Serious kudos to Cerador for getting asphalt past the censors and into people's homes. Be well and don't step onto hot streets without a good pair of boots. <laughs> Your loyal listener, Kurt with a K. So I have not seen that, guys. Have y'all either of y'all watched that? I have <clears throat> I have not watched uh, that particular story yet because there are so many of them. But yes, I have the set and I have cracked it open and I have started watching it. It's just uh, I, 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 I don't want to do them one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, because I'm afraid that I'll I'll start to lose the joy of each independent... Because, you know, it is an anthology series, and I don't want to have them all kind of crammed together in my mind. I'm trying to space them out a little bit. But yeah, it's fantastic. And the fact that we now have that on Blu-ray is... It's a dream come true, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I personally haven't seen it yet, but, but I'm looking forward to digging into it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's really refreshing because it's it's exceptional it's it's exceptionally well done, and it's also fun because you have Sarah Dor, uh, you know, introducing the stories and uh, being on camera and you know very much being kind of the Rod Serling of the series. It's pre- it's pretty it's pretty great. You can see how it made him uh, a household name in Spain and how he was able to parlay that into. Uh, you know the 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 game show that he made in the seventies that you know made him rich beyond all all degrees of avarice. So uh, yeah, he uh, he did he did good. Don't don't get me wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm I'm glad he did the show for a number of reasons. Not the least of which is that it allowed him to do uh, the two fantastic horror films that he made: Who Can Kill a Child and uh, The House That Screamed. But uh, he's his his work. His work is exceptional, and you get to see a lot of different shades and nuance in that series because he gets to play around with a lot of different kinds of stories. It's it's extremely cool. Cool. And he's like the he, he's a sole creator and director of all these, or oh no 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 he has a, you know, he has a team, but it's it's his show. He's very he was very much so he, the guy he's a showrunner is what the term is now. Yeah, yeah and, so, okay. and also and also yeah. did a lot of the writing and directing on a number of a number right. of the episodes as well. Yeah. All right. Well, Mark, uh, Mr. Orbit DVD, uh, once again. Yes, thanks for joining us. That, thank you. Yeah. yeah, anytime. We're so glad to have you. And, uh, of course, uh, once again, uh, one of the best reasons to have a guest on the show is that you push us to reexamine something that we've not thought about in a little while. And uh, I won't say that I've stayed away from Inquisition, but it is one where I felt like I kind of, you know, I spent like a month and a half drilling it into my head several years ago and I've kind of enjoyed going back to it now that uh, now that I can think about it clearly without stressing over the fact that oh my god people are going to pay money for this damn thing aren't they because nobody's paying money for this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can hear this for free so 
<laughs> well, I, I, I hope they at least gave you twenty bucks for the commentary. That's uh, that's a that's a going rate, right? Twenty dollars. Twenty bucks? No, that is yeah. not the going. I mean, rate. after uh, after Schwarzenegger was charging, I think was it seven hundred fifty thousand dollars? You know, like like there's not much money left for the commentary track. So <laughs> yes, there's, there was a, a set amount of money out there in the world, and Arnold took it all. So, so. See, he took all the commentary money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. No, no, no. It, uh, it was it was more than twenty bucks, thank God. But uh, no, <laughs> we're not getting paid a few. We're not getting paid a few thousand for this. No, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, Troy, is there anything else? Anything else that I'm forgetting? I don't believe so. I think we're good. All right. Well, once again, Mark, thank you for coming on and uh, joining us. And yeah. uh, we'll have to have you back and discuss. Uh, well, like I say, I, I, I'm kind of uh, kind of going to be interested in your reactions to uh, Frenchman's Garden and El Caminante. Well, yeah, I could I could talk about one of those in the, in the future. I cool, guess. Cool. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, so. Uh, yes, folks. And if you're on the North Carolina side of the Smoky mm-hmm. Mountains, if you like, the- I always say, if you like seeing the sun set. Over the instead of instead of rising over the mountains, yes, yes, go to Asheville and go to Orbit DVD. Yeah, right. there's a lot more to Asheville than us, but we we are the main reason you should come. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. there's yeah, also like, oh yeah, the the biggest house in the country is there too. You know, <laughs> yeah. well, <laughs> yeah, no. I, think you, I think if you Google, you Google things to do in Asheville, and top comes the Biltmore, and then right below it comes Orbit. Orbit, oh, yeah. yeah, Orbit, a strong, a strong. <laughs> Strong number two. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Mark, once again, thank you very much. uh, And we will talk to you again later. Uh, Remember, folks, if you want to get in uh, an email to us, the address is nashicast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, until next time, my name is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon. Well, relatively soon. (laughs) I I ain't making no promises. Thank you.